Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the second in a series of podcasts dealing with COVID-19. I'm Mel Norton, and I'm joined by my partner, Kelly Van Buskirk. We are definitely socially distanced, and uh, this is a remote recording with our friends, uh, Zach and Don, who are taking, uh, taking care over the interwebs uh, to record this. Uh, we're going to try to jump into and pick up where we left off during our last episode, but to dive into some healthcare-related and human rights-related topics for you today. Um, all of this um, from a New Brunswick perspective, um, but certainly has wider application than that. Kelly, do you want to begin maybe just introducing the topic and some of the, even the material you've read this weekend and written about this weekend? Sure. Well, thanks, Mel. I think that for many employers, um, what's being experienced are a number of questions from employees regarding um, their health and COVID. So there, there, there are the employers, as we discussed in our last podcast, who uh, may have to suspend their business activities and may have to lay off employees as a result of downturns in their business derived from this from this pandemic. There are other employers, though, who are um, continuing to operate and who have to operate uh, because for some they are essential services. And in those instances, there are employees within those organizations who are very concerned about being at work and being exposed to COVID-19. There are a number of categories of employees who are concerned about COVID-19. First, there is the general population of employees, all of us who are concerned about contracting COVID-19. And we would say, I don't want to catch that. So do I really want to be at work? Do I really want to be out in public? That's one set of fears. And then there's another set of fears, though, uh, amongst employees who say, well, I can't catch COVID-19 because I have family members to look after, young children or elderly parents uh, or a spouse who just had a, uh, an organ transplant. There's that set of fears. And then thirdly, there's a set of fears that derive from having um, a medical disability already uh, so that the person has a compromised immune system. Like if, if you are an employee who has a heart defect or, or you have cancer or diabetes, something that is uh, compromising your immune system, then you fall into another category of fears. And employers are having all of those people come forward to say, look, I have concerns here. And that puts a lot of weight on the shoulders of employers to answer all those fears. And it becomes, and maybe we can can steer for a moment in the direction of um, specifically our healthcare providers. I was struck this weekend as my wife and I we were we were doing a walk around the Lower Cove Loop in St. John and up Harbor Passage, and I was struck as we walked through the uptown in St. John how few businesses are deemed essential. Almost everything is shuttered, but one place that is is not closed um, are hospitals. Now, most of the elective and day surgeries and all those types of things have been eliminated. But for, for thousands of people in our healthcare system, and, and I ran into um, a, a physician on the way up, up Princess Street the other day, uh, and we had a brief chat about his experience, 
at the hospital. For many of our healthcare workers, it is not optional uh, in terms of, of reporting to work. They have to continue to go. Uh, they're preparing for, for perhaps worst case scenarios. Kelly, what, what have you seen as some of the, the real challenges from a, from a human rights perspective or from an accommodation perspective that those people who are, are most essential to keeping us safe right now uh, are facing? Right. Well, it seems to me, Mel, that there there is this intersection of legal issues that uh, employers and and now we're talking about managers in the healthcare system, but employers generally have to sort through. One of them is the question of occupational health and safety. Here in New Brunswick, we know that every employee has the right to refuse unsafe work. And by refusing that unsafe work, there is a process triggered by which, you know, an examination of the work is done to, to confirm whether or not it's safe for the employee to, to carry on with. In some provinces, there is a bit of a distinction there where people can't refuse certain kinds of work. So in the healthcare system, for example, should a nurse be allowed to say, look, you know, I'm concerned that I'm going to be put in danger. I'm concerned that I'm going to contract uh, COVID-19, so I'm going to refuse to treat this particular patient. You know, that's that's one of the issues that um, managers in the healthcare system uh, run into is this right to refuse under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. But then there are the other uh, circumstances under the Human Rights Act where an employee says, hey, I've got either a medical condition myself or a family member with a medical condition. And because of that, I cannot be exposed to COVID-19. And that's a human rights issue that um, employers are trying to sort through as well. And the temptation is to say, look, everybody, we all have to work uh, if we're in an essential service. And so all of those rights that would typically exist under the law have been suspended. And by the way, Mel, as you know, in some cases, there are levels of suspension of those rights that come from the declaration of state of emergency in each province. So in some provinces, there actually has been some suspension of those legal rights that would otherwise exist. And so it makes it really complicated in the healthcare field. It, it, is, it is really complicated. And one of the, one of the added complications is, and you, you touched on this, if you make a complaint of an unsafe work condition and and you follow the process in New Brunswick, you can end up having an investigator from uh, WorkSafe New Brunswick come in and and assess the situation. One of the one of the complicating features is under the legislation there isn't necessarily a specific answer and a specific solution around keeping a workplace safe. It, it's not as if the legislation says in or, or dives into the level of detail of every possible scenario around keeping things safe in the workplace. There are general principles. There are uh, general rules. We have, you know, social distancing. There's, you know, six feet or two meter rules. But even in some situations, that's not possible. Then there's uh, personal protective equipment requirements. Um, but there is not often... Um, a crystal clear answer on what you do in any given situation uh, or every given situation. There are general principles around this, which 
probably adds a layer of complication that maybe employers in any sector are were not expecting. Perhaps they expected that there were going to be a list of kind of an, an exhaustive list of the kinds of steps and protocols you put in place for every conceivable situation, but that's not not the reality of our of our system, is it? No, for sure. And I think when it comes to employees in any operating business right now, they do have a right to basic safety and safety from COVID-19 infection. But as you point out, we can't guarantee that. Every day we're learning something new about COVID-19. You know, a chemical engineer from um, University of California was talking on Friday about the fact that our understanding of how far the, the virus can travel through the aerosol that we all speak, not cough or not sneeze out, but just speak out, that that aerosol can contain uh, COVID-19 infection that can, you know, that can impact any person. So we can't expect, you know, perfect safety here, but what our expectations can be is that the employer will follow a general safety protocol like the ones that have been issued by the government of Canada or the provincial government in the area where the person is working, right? That's step one. And, and Kelly, if you're in the situation of dealing with these, and let's let's pretend for a moment that you're that manager and, and you, you've been receiving these calls and, and I've received some of these calls from managers dealing with these concerns raised by employees, is the first step and let's assume it for a minute it's a safety type of concern, is the first step on that journey really making sure that the employer's internal policies around safety, specifically for COVID-19, that they're aligned with what are the most current, the current recommendations from your provincial health authority or from uh, from the government of Canada's, you know, from Health Canada. Is that the first step on that journey? Right, because don't forget, Mel, that at the end of the SARS crisis, what happened was in some jurisdictions, including Ontario, um, members of the public and even members of the public service, like nurses, sued the government based on whether or not the government's directives for keeping people safe had been appropriate. So there were lawsuits against the government of Ontario to the effect that it had not taken the appropriate steps to keep people safe. If you're an employer and you're following the directives of the government, at least you're taking an, an objective measurement and you're applying it in your workplace so that you can demonstrate due diligence. You can demonstrate that you've followed a set of rules that were prescribed by the government or recommended by the government and you've done that for the purpose of keeping the people in your workplace safe. That's step one, right? And it avoids that trap. And, and you've, you've maybe, maybe this is one of your famous uh, quotes, but, but I've heard you, you, you know, say, and I think it's very true, that uh, managers need to avoid the temptation to play doctor right. uh, or to play expert. And um, unless you actually are one of those experts who's employing people, you, you should not pretend for for even a second to be uh, an armchair physician or an M armchair virologist or whatever specialist happens to be uh, catch your eye that day. You have to have to take some objective 
uh, information and apply that that information. Right. In February and early March, we all talked to somebody who was an armchair epidemiologist, right? Who said, oh, no, no need to worry about this because here's why. Or look, it's no worse than the flu. Lots of people die from the flu. That's no worries. And now we're sitting uh, in front of our computer screens or our television screens, looking at these ballooning numbers of not just infections, but deaths. And suddenly the armchair epidemiologists are not so vocal, right? Because fine, those armchair epidemiologists right now, right? Nobody's really as anxious to talk about um, how simple it is to solve the COVID crisis. So if you're an employer, you say, look, I'm going to do the rational, responsible thing, and I'm going to take advice from the experts, like the government of Canada, like the government of the province where you operate, and I'm going to follow their set of rules, because at least that's a starting point and a good, solid, researched um, set of rules to keep my workers safe. Step one. And so let's kind of go maybe a layer, a layer deeper, Kelly. You know, there are many employers that are uh, taking all those steps. They're following the, the Health Canada guidelines. They're following the province of New Brunswick's guidelines. And they're doing even maybe something that is beyond that. We've seen recently employers trying to put in place additional safety measures to reopen their workplaces. And, and one that's caught, caught my eye, certainly, and it's, it's I'm sure, same for you, is around this idea, and it touches on the issue of human rights, scanning people for temperature as they're entering the workplace. And I suppose the first thing is, how are they doing that scanning process, and what are they doing with that information? Sure. I think lots of, or a number of employers, at least, that I'm aware of, have, have started offering temperature scanning for employees. And in some cases, it's because employees might not have at their home a temperature monitor that would allow them to test their temperature. So for some employees, it's a welcomed service that the employer is providing. But at the same time, it's a, it's a means of protecting the entire workforce, isn't it? We saw just recently where a pork factory in South Dakota uh, has reported hundreds of COVID-19 infections because everybody was in there working together. And so from an employer's perspective, the due diligence that, you know, that is necessary to keep the workforce safe or as safe as we can be in the, you know, circumstance of a pandemic is a, you know, a pretty a pretty high bar. So so I think for a lot of employers, the idea of temperature testing is a prospect. It seems to me that the best way to go about that is first to make sure that if you're going to embark on temperature testing, you have to think about the, um, you know, the sanitary aspects of it and and the hygiene of it. And that might seem like a statement of the obvious, but in in the course of a pandemic, we all might forget, you know, that temperature testing tool that you're using uh, is going to be a conveyor of, or a potential conveyor of infection. So, so step one, how are you as an employer making sure that that's, you know, completely sanitary and not going to transmit infection? Step two, 
ideally, that's a service that employees volunteer to participate in. And so what that would mean is taking a, a documentary recording of the fact that the employee is volunteering to you know, participate in temperature testing. And the third thing is that, um, as you pointed out, you have to be cautious with the information that you get. Because we've also seen on the news and through social media, many instances of shaming and shaming that's gone to the point of violence over one person thinking that another person's got COVID-19 and, you know, isn't taking adequate steps to protect the rest of the, uh, the rest of the crowd or the rest of the people um, that might be entering and exiting a building. So from an employer's perspective, um, it's one thing to offer to take somebody's temperature and to do that process properly. But once you get that temperature information, if it's 38.6 and you write that down on a clipboard and you leave the clipboard on the table where the next person can see it, uh, you've created a problem. Right. And, and the, the whole idea of what do you do with that, that data once it's recorded, who gets that data? Does the employer get a record of the temperature of everybody coming and going from a plant uh, or from a from a business what are the policies around normally that kind of health related or medical related information wouldn't be something that an employer would have automatic access to or would have access to at all without a, a process uh, being followed and and probably a pretty extensive process when you're talking about that specific kind of, of medical information um, and then and then ensuring the integrity of with in the process by which that's been obtained is it is it the person that's normally working on the assembly line that's taking the temperature readings of fellow workers or is it a healthcare professional that's actually trained in in the process and the, and using equipment uh, specifically right. intended for that purpose right obviously every employer has to turn their mind to those kinds of questions and obviously ideally you know any temperature testing that's done will be done in very controlled circumstances and done by a healthcare professional. You know, in some workplaces that may not be possible. And so there might be have to be adjustments made, but if adjustments are made, then there also has to be corresponding protections put in place to ensure that all these various considerations are taken into account. The key being that we're trying to create balance, aren't we, uh, you know, between individual rights, like safety and privacy and collective rights, like the whole, um, you know, protection of, of everyone who might access uh, premises. And I go back to that pork factory as a great, you know, unfortunate example where more than a hundred people become infected because obviously one person was and didn't understand that they were infected. Kelly, just do a bit of a thought exercise with me for a minute. I mean, are we in a in a place, and we're, we're kind of dancing around the issue, but are we at a place in time where we're pushing back maybe more than we have in our experience or to date, individual rights and individual protections for the for the benefit of the whole? And are, and, and are we, is there a point at which those don't return? Or when when will we know that they can return to what what was normal or, or are we going to be into maybe a prolonged period of a new normal where this the safety of the whole 
and and maybe we're seeing this dynamic play out a little bit between the way we're approaching COVID-19 in New Brunswick, which thankfully, uh, you know, maybe the curve is already flattened in New Brunswick. Uh, things are going really well, knock on wood, in, in this province. But we know of other provinces and certainly south of the border where things are have gone, you know, very badly. Maybe it's a function of how we've been willing uh, more quickly to give up those individual rights and in favor of protecting the collective. And um, are, are we are we pushing pushing the boundary back on on where individual protections have been or maybe should be? Sure. And I'm not a philosopher, but I think John Stuart Mill and Immanuel Kant, people like that, spoke about this um, and worked through some of these issues. The reality is that we've spent our careers, haven't we, Mel, talking very significantly about individual rights. And we hear so, so many people who are focused on individual rights. They, they, they are focused on human rights. They're focused on privacy rights. They're focused on their employment rights, all of which are valuable. But when you're dealing with a pandemic, then it causes us to, to rethink how we perceive ourselves as a member of a larger, a larger collective. And I, I think that you know, the pandemic that we're facing today is causing the whole society to regroup and to recognize that, you know, we can't possibly, we can't possibly maintain uh, individual rights at the level that we've maintained them to this point, while at the same time trying to protect as many members of the collective as we can. It's, it's not, yeah. a, not a possibility. Yeah, I know that I've found myself providing a lot more advice to employers especially on on really how to enforce collective group protection and group rights maybe to an extent and and in many ways undermining individual rights that that um, or working around individual rights that four weeks ago we wouldn't have really necessarily been thinking about or, or even thought possible I mean, simple things, and I think you may have touched on it the last time we were we were talking, Kelly, on this podcast around the very fact that the mediums that we're using to interact with coworkers and to monitor performance are these um, video conferencing services that take us directly into people's homes and and uh, eliminate the, the the barrier between what is what is the employer's domain and the personal domain. Those are the, the lines, and those are perhaps completely gone at this point. Yeah, sure. And that also applies in the context of health. Like on the one hand, we would all like to be able to say that, well, we have children at home or or we have elderly parents. And so consequently, you know, we we don't want to put ourselves at risk of infection because of those individuals. And so, you know, there is the temptation on the one hand to uh, reflect on family status protection from discrimination, right? We, we have this, this uh, instinct toward the human rights arena to say, well, look, I, I have a family status issue, which could be true. But the, the problem is, isn't it, that if we all do that, then how will it be possible to maintain any sort of economic viability, right? Because this is this is one of those interesting times where 
you know, individual rights could easily uh, collapse the society. Kelly, maybe that's a good place to, to leave it in terms of, of some thoughts around where we're heading, where we've, we've been to this point. I mean, obviously, this is a challenging time for many employers and for many employees. And as we come into really the second month of, of what we expect is going to last uh, quite a bit longer, I'm not sure sure what your perspective is, but what what I've been been sensing from employers, especially, is the next number of weeks are maybe going to be harder than the first first four weeks in this way, that that many employers were prepared perhaps for a short term slowdown or maybe had the ability to support their employees for two, three, four weeks without layoffs, but we're going to come into sort of a second wave, or maybe we're already into that second wave of greater concern about the ability of employers to remain operational and keep employees on the payroll, and for those employers that are operating to become even more vigilant around keeping their employees employees safe. Right, and Mel, it might be worth just reminding employers and employees to think of the simple answers, because some of these questions are complex and require complex answers, but there are some simple answers. Uh, For example, we can all do our part, employers and employees, to keep each other safe. And we can do that by focusing on the government directives that um, tell us step by step how to do that. We've seen it on the news. We've seen it in the uh, uh, social media publications. We know how to do it. We have to follow those rules. That's step one, whether you're an employer or an employee, right? Secondly, step two is that we have to separate the fears that we all have as the larger population from the more distinct fears that come with family status issues and that come with personal immune compromise issues. If you're an employee who has a medical condition that makes you so much more susceptible to COVID-19, that is something to take forward to your employer and employers have to think more carefully about that. But if you're a person who can work and who has the fear that we all have, we have to recognize as well that the governments, both federally and provincially, are telling us how to keep ourselves safe and we can still work within that context. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And On that note, perhaps we'll just ask all of our our listeners, thank you for joining us again. Please stay safe, stay well, and look forward to bringing another update in in the next number of days. Agreed.